Our speaker today is James P. B. Conroy. Mr. Conroy holds a master's degree in international relations and a law degree from Georgetown University. He currently practices law in Boston as a co-founder of Donley, Conroy, and Gelhar, one of the city's leading litigation firms. Uh, in 2014, he was elected as a fellow to the Massachusetts Historical Society in recognition of his first book, Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln, and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865, which tells the little-known story of Lincoln's peace negotiations with Confederate leaders near the end of the Civil War. Mr. Conroy also served for six years as a photographer and journalist in anti-submarine aviation units in the United States Navy Reserve and has worked on Capitol Hill as a speechwriter and a press secretary. He is a member of Hingham's Historical Commission and its Community Preservation Committee and sits on its advisory committee which counsels the Hingham Town Meeting, an exercise in direct democracy through which the town has governed itself since 1635 and not the least of which his accomplishments are is that he is a member of the Boston Athenaeum. <laughs> uh, this afternoon, Mr. Conroy joins us to discuss his new book, Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime, which just received the Gilder Learman Lincoln Prize, which is awarded annually by that institution for the finest scholarly work in English on Abraham Lincoln, the American Civil War, or a subject relating to the era. So well done. Uh, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Conroy. Thank you, Bill, for that very generous introduction. Um, I should say at the beginning that the book is largely researched here at the Athenaeum, which has been my home away from home for a number of years now, and it's a great honor and a privilege to be able to address my fellow Athenians uh, in this beautiful place, which I think we're all very grateful for. Um, I'm only going to give you the slightest introduction before we get into these slides. Um, many books, roughly 13,000 in fact, have been written about Lincoln. 13,002 now. Um, and I think that anyone who presumes to write another has to have a reason and an explanation, uh, which I do give in the introduction to my book. But the essence of it is that no one had ever written a book about the day-to-day -day life in Lincoln's White House, what it was like to be there, to work there, to be entertained there, to do business there. And um, I found in doing the research that there were and are a great many primary sources uh, people have left behind, visitors, family members, staff members, guards, all sorts of people who wrote about what it was like to, to be in that environment. And uh, I've tried to assemble all of that and tell a story that I hope has made some sort of contribution and might even be entertaining uh, in one or two pages. Uh, so that said, let me get right on to the, um, onto the uh, pr presentation. I should tell you at the beginning that a lot of the slides, not, not nearly all, but many of the slides that you will see are black and white Civil War photography that's been colorized by um, computer technology. And uh, 
I hesitate to, to take any credit for that because I didn't do any of it. Uh, it's been assembled by this website that you see given due credit here, uh, The Civil War in Color, which I highly recommend to anyone who is interested in this sort of thing. I think you can judge for yourselves that these photographs really pop when you see them and they give you um, a look at these folks uh, in a way that we have never really been able to relate to them in black and white. So to start, we have a photograph of Lincoln taken right after he won the presidency in November of 1860, uh, at the age of 51. Um, if anything, I think a relatively youthful, vigorous, vibrant 51, um, without the beard, and many of you know the story of, of how the beard came about, but between the election and the White House, uh, the beard materialized. But um, that said, you know, we've all seen presidents in our own lifetime who age in those four years or eight years in the White House with the burdens of office. I don't think any of them went through what Lincoln went through as the photograph of him taken four years later uh, in 1865 uh, speaks well for itself. Most of the book um, doesn't dwell on the burdens that caused that transformation, but I must say that one of the critics said something that I hadn't even thought about as I was writing it, which is that the book is largely the story of the people uh, who staffed the White House and the strains that they endured in those four years and how they dealt with them with humor and in other ways. Uh, Lincoln told a friend after the first month in, in office that had he known the strains that he would be subjected to in that first month, he would not have thought it possible to survive them. On a lighter note, I think that any presentation on Lincoln's White House should start with Lincoln's White House. Uh, this is a uh, contemporary photograph taken of Lincoln's White House while he was president. It's been enhanced again by Photoshop technology, but it is an original photograph, untouched, unretouched. And what I'd like to tell audiences is that, you know, I think of Lincoln's White House as both familiar and strange at the same time. It's familiar in the sense that we look at it and in a glance, we know that it's Lincoln, you know, that it's the White House. It's the same building. It's, uh, it looks very much today as it did then uh, in its own skin. But if we take a little closer look here, we see a great many changes. I'll only have time to speak about a few of them. Uh, first is the gravel walkway uh, around the central statue of Thomas Jefferson, where the fountain is today. Uh, it was not a very good statue. It was not very well kept. Uh, one of Lincoln's aides said that when he saw it, having arrived from Illinois, it struck him as a moldy old Indian just dug up. Um, and around it are, I would say, inartful shrubbery. Uh, I think most of us could do better than that. Um, the trees in front of the White House blocked the view and have long since been removed. Um, the trees to the sides, if the camera pulled back to a wider view, would have been a densely wooded, sort of wooded park on both sides of the White House, not just a few odd trees. And Lincoln, uh, you know, terrified his aides and his family almost every night by walking through that dense woods on the right to the War Department and back, 
without an escort, without a guard, uh, in the middle of the Civil War. And the other thing, the last thing I'll point, well, two, two quick things. One is that you, you would see today the Washington Monument from that point of view with a photograph of the White House, which was only half built at the time and therefore is not visible. And perhaps the most interesting thing is if you look at the upper floor, the windows are open. Uh, this photograph was no doubt taken in the uh, hot weather, and I'm sure everyone, or almost everyone, has been to Washington in the summer. You know what it's like. Um, one of Lincoln's aides said, coming from Illinois, um, that you had the choice of either leaving the windows closed and being steamed like a head of broccoli, uh, or opening them and being bitten alive, uh, since there were no screens and there was a malarial swamp about 500 yards down south from the White House. This statue of Jackson, which still stands in Lafayette Square today, opposite the White House, was relatively new in Lincoln's day. Uh, the British novelist Anthony Trollope came through town while Lincoln was in office and brought very, very little of the city that he saw, um, with good reason. And this statue was high on the list. Uh, he said, for one thing, that the horsemanship was absurd and that the writer was manifestly drunk. Um, and surely, Trollope said, this statue, at any rate, will soon be removed. This photograph, also contemporary, taken of the south front of the White House uh, in Lincoln's day. The uh, stone wall in the foreground was called Jefferson's Wall, having been built in the Jefferson administration encircling the grounds. Um, you can see the graffiti on that wall, which had started in about 1802 and accumulated for the next 60 years. Um, off to the, well, in the middle, you see these children on the lawn that are thought to be uh, Tad and Willie Lincoln and some of their friends. And then off to the left, you see the conservatory, which stood where the West Wing stands today. Conservatory had been built uh, by Buchanan. Um, sort of braving the common wisdom that the concentrated aroma of flowers was toxic and uh, could make you very ill. But uh, defying that logic, they built the conservatory, uh, which was heated by uh, coal-fired uh, steam and uh, produced this kind of glorious profusion of flowers and plants and lemons and strawberries all year round. Um, Mrs. Lincoln uh, delighted her friends, as you can imagine, giving them gifts of fresh flowers and strawberries in January and February, which was sort of miraculous at, at that time. Um, and one of Lincoln's aides, John Hayes, who we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, said that the conservatory was originally open to the public on the presumption that the people would be above stealing flowers from the president. Uh, but uh, Hay was a lawyer and uh, noticed that the presumption had been rebutted um, as a result of which the conservatory was then closed to the public and open only to the Lincolns and their guests. Um, this photograph was taken in the conservatory. The uh, Plains Indian chiefs in the foreground had come as a kind of a diplomatic delegation. Um, these gentlemen in the back are European diplomats, their wives in this sort of diplomatic uniform. There's a child there. Uh, in the middle, um, there's a, I got to say, a tragic story about these Indians I don't have time to tell, um, but what became of them later with their Lincoln Peace Medals uh, 
around their throats was not a credit to our country. Uh, behind them, we have John George Nicolay, who was Lincoln's private secretary, which we'll speak about in a minute, and Mrs. Lincoln standing off uh, to the right. I show you this 1861 map of Washington, the relevant part of it, for two reasons. One is to notice the scant development, even around the White House. There were very large lawns or little mini farms, if you will, there, growing vegetables and such. Um, and you can see that it thins out a bit as you get away from the White House. Again, if the uh, view here were pulled back, there would be very little outside the border here and almost nothing beyond that white border. The city was very underdeveloped at the time. And I think most telling uh, is this body of water here that was called the canal. You know, you've got the Potomac River here. You have this canal branching off from it, which had been opened some 20 or 30 years before uh, for a commercial project that failed. So you now had this stagnant body of water, um, which you can imagine in June and July and August was not uh, a selling point uh, for that real estate. There were animal carcasses, all sorts of refuse. The, there were no sewers. Things flowed right into the canal. Uh, John Hay writes a letter from the White House there and says that he's composing it with the ghosts of 20,000 dead cats. So you get some kind of sense of what it was like to live in that White House with that open window or with the window closed in the summer. This is a photograph taken from, for those of you who know Washington, roughly where the Holocaust Museum is today. Um, and for a little better orientation, the Washington Monument is just about there. Um, this is the Treasury Department, which is still there. The White House here. Um, and nothing to speak of off uh, to the east. Uh, you can even see the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains there in the distance, which I can assure you, you cannot see today. Um, the cattle are grazing right next to a slaughterhouse, unbeknownst to them. And um, I always like to mention that at least in the 1860s, you could still get a parking space on the mall. <laughs> uh, this photograph of the south front of the White House, I'm showing you primarily to point out what was called the basement at the time. Today, it's a very polished part of the official building. Um, it's on the public tours. The diplomatic room is there. Um, in, in Lincoln's day, it was actually a basement, uh, a walkout basement on the south end. But since the ground slopes from Pennsylvania Avenue downward, at the front end, there were only little slits for windows uh, back where the kitchen was and the servants' quarters were. Um, one of Lincoln's aides says that the basement smelled like something on the edge of some swamp. Uh, was a rat-infested uh, space. Uh, the commissioner of public buildings told Lincoln he was going to get a ferret to put it in the basement to clear out the rats. Uh, Lincoln said that there were rats in all the federal buildings. They should get a lot of ferrets and clean them all out. Um, the book also goes into some detail about the physical plant, the lighting, the heat, the uh, water and such. And in the basement was a pump that broke down one day. Lincoln grabbed a monkey wrench and went down in the basement with a soldier and fixed it himself. I don't think we're likely to see that uh, 
in the current White House. This layout of the first floor of the White House, the ceremonial floor, is very much as it is today. And I only will I'll only point out one detail that I think is, is interesting, and that's the Porter's Lodge. If you picture going into the North Portico, into the vestibule, off here uh, on the right is the Porter's Lodge. The Porter was a little Irishman, about five foot four from Ireland, by the name of Edward McManus. Um, almost a stereotypical leprechaun kind of character, um, washing his hands, as they would put it, as if, as, you know, uh, whatever the word is, wringing his hands as if he were washing them, uh, making witty remarks, kind of subtly cutting down the, the aristocrats and the big shots who came through the door. Uh, at one point, an English lord writes uh, in a travel book that he came into the White House and there was this little Irishman cracking nuts in a familiar manner, as he put it. And he took off his coat and hat and handed them to Edward McManus, or tried to. And Edward pointed him to a table and said he could leave it there if he wanted to or take it with him if he preferred. But he suggested taking it with him, there being all kinds of people about. <laughs> um, assisting Edward McManus was a six foot four Irishman by the name of Burns who was equally uh, temperamental uh, like his boss. And you have this kind of Mutt and Jeff thing with the five foot four uh, uh, Edward and the six foot four Burns. Between them, Edward and Burns made the entirety of the White House security force at the time Lincoln was inaugurated. There were no guards, no sentries, no secret service, no police nothing but Edward and Burns, who were completely unarmed. Um, I show you this contemporary colored engraving of the East Room during a Lincoln reception, partly for its own sake and partly to note that it is superficially attractive, but if you had been there, you would have seen something else. Uh, one of Lincoln's aides at the time they moved in, said that the White House resembled a third-rate hotel. Uh, the carpets were uncleaned, the drapes were faded, uh, frayed furniture. Uh, people came in and snipped off pieces of carpeting and tassels off drapes for souvenirs. There were greasy handprints on the old faded peeling wallpaper, uh, a completely unattractive, rundown sort of place that was kind of a scandal and shocked Mrs. Lincoln when she walked in there for the first time since 1849. Um, this engraving of the South Grounds, uh, kind of looking from the South Portico, is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it was recording a reception for the Prince Napoleon, who was um, a nephew of the original Napoleon, and um, visiting the United States as kind of an informal goodwill mission from the emperor, Napoleon III. There's Lincoln and the invited guests. And off on the grounds are the public, who were free to walk around the White House grounds every day but Sunday. It was basically an open public park. Uh, people took advantage of it as such. And there were band concerts under that tent uh, twice a week in the warm weather. You see the Potomac off here in the distance, and that half-finished uh, stub of the Washington Monument. And if you, no doubt many of you know, but if you ever look at the Washington Monument, you'll see that the stone changes color about a third of the way up. 
uh, work had been suspended on it when the war broke out, and after it was resumed, they used a different quarry, and we have a different stone. Uh, here are the lawnmowers. <laughs> and this front view of the north side of the White House, um, I'm showing you for two reasons. One, uh, you can see the cobblestone Pennsylvania Avenue there with the horse-drawn trailer or trolley tracks. This was only one of two paved streets in the city of Washington at the time, the other being only a stretch of a block or two in the uh, fashionable shopping district. But even though it was cobblestoned, the dirt streets that ran into it were not. And whenever there was a heavy rain, as there is every other day in Washington in the summer, you would get this kind of deluge of water and mud flowing into, the, uh, into Pennsylvania Avenue. One newspaper said that the mud was neither thick enough to walk on nor thin enough to swim in. And uh, a visiting British journalist claimed that Pennsylvania Avenue, about half the time, would have made a respectable trout stream. Uh, he said that he was trying to cross the street one day when the current caught him, and he managed to grab the curbstone and survive. Uh, the other reason I show it to you is to illustrate the point that any one of those people, man, woman, or child, who wanted to do it, could have walked through the White House gates, up to the front door, into the White House, into the red room, the blue room, the green room, upstairs to the office wing, which we'll talk about in a minute, without interruption, without any check of any kind. Um, one, another, you know, the Brits give you an interesting perspective because they come from you know, this more civilized, advanced culture as they see it, and they can't believe their eyes and ears when they come to Washington. So there's a good bit of that in the book. Uh, one of them writes back to his uh, readers in London, uh, the president's house is not his castle. It is not even his house. <laughs> uh, one of those casual visitors was Nathaniel Hawthorne, who came down with a group of Massachusetts whip makers who had come to visit the president and make a, you know, a donation of an ivory-handled whip uh, to him. And Hawthorne writes in the Atlantic that there were about five or six of them. And as they walked into the portico, he was recognized. He was an international celebrity even then. And gradually, small groups of hangers-on attached themselves to this little group of five. And Hawthorne says by the time they went into Lincoln's office, we were a motley assembly of about 30 people, um, all, of, all of us unknown to each other, uh, but each of us capable and allowed uh, to look our head servant in the face. In addition to just wandering in whenever the spirit moved you, the public were invited as well to open receptions uh, once a week in the period between New Year's Day and Lent. And uh, they were called levies. Uh, you, could, you could get in line, uh, go through the receiving line, shake the president's hand, meet Mrs. Lincoln, and you'd be passed along quite briskly. Lincoln developed a real knack for shaking with the right hand and pushing with the left. Um, John Hay says that people occasionally tried to give him a speech, but it would quickly be squeezed out of them. Uh, but up from anywhere from three to 500 people to 1,000 people would pass through that receiving line once a week, Lincoln would shake each of those hands. 
uh, some of them unwashed, uh, wearing a white kid glove, which Mrs. Lincoln writes uh, she wanted to take by the tongs and put in the fire uh, after that uh, experience had been survived. One of the people who went through that receiving line is Herman Melville, uh, who had written a book about a whale that had failed miserably, uh, sold a few hundred copies. Melville was in Washington shortly after Lincoln's inaugural looking for a job, as were many thousands of others, and uh, wanted a job as the American Council in Florence. And who wouldn't? But uh, unfortunately for, for Herman Melville, the job went refreshingly enough to an actual diplomat, and uh, Melville went back to the Berkshires. Uh, in addition to all of that, there were annual open houses on New Year's Day where, uh, again, anyone could come through the White House. Uh, and one of the joys of New Year's Day for the common people of Washington was that they could line up and watch these diplomats as they arrived in the diplomatic reception that preceded the public reception. And you can see in this engraving, you know, the military uniforms, the uh, elaborate diplomatic uniforms, the uh, Chinese minister, the Turkish minister, and people would applaud, you know, these outfits as they got out of their carriages one by one and give it a kind of a applause meter rating. You could see who was popular and who was not. So then we come to Lincoln's staff. This is his private secretary, John George Nicolay, um, officially the only authorized staff person for the president of the United States. Congress appropriated salary and uh, facilities for one staff person for the president. Uh, Nicolay was 29 years old when he took over that role, had been a newspaper man in Illinois, a political ally of Lincoln's, uh, German-born in a little village in uh, Bavaria, came here with his parents when he was about three years old, um, young enough so have not to acquired an accent, but in an age when people were not shy about ethnic stereotypes, the records are full of references to Nicolay as Teutonic, Germanic, uh, in his bearing and in his attitude toward things. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the newspaper men called him the Gorgon in the waiting room, uh, who would sort of screen uh, persistent people as best he could from getting in to see the president. But um, Nicolay was very close to Lincoln. They had a, um, a sort of unique relationship, and I think it's summed up best by Nicolay himself, who writes in his sort of clipped fashion, there was never any red tape between us, which I think gives you the best sense of that relationship. Lincoln's assistant, John Hay, um, was actually uh, paid and assigned as an interior department clerk uh, delegated for duty in the White House, which is how they avoided the one staff person rule. Uh, Hay was 22 years old when he took that position, fresh out of Brown University, also from Illinois originally, um, the son of a physician and a physician's daughter, um, had far more sort of polish and sophistication than anyone else in the White House community, and uh, is universally described from college forward by the many people who knew him as the most interesting and the most charming person they had ever known. Um, one of them, in fact, more than one of them say, several of them say, 
that you could not spend 15 minutes with John Hay without him saying something wonderful that you couldn't wait to take home to tell someone else. And that in addition to that, he had this knack of somehow attributing it to you. So that you left the conversation with John Hay feeling wonderfully well about John Hay and also wonderfully well about yourself. Uh, a born diplomat with a real talent for people. Um, and we'll talk about John Hay as we go. Um, Apart from his wit and his brilliance and precocity, uh, many of the grizzled old Washington veterans, senators, congressmen, newspapermen, did not like the idea of a 22-year-old kid telling them when they could and could not see the president, which was something new to them. And there's a lot of uh, sort of stabbing references to Hay from them, one of which comes from an old-timer who said that Hay was quite the ladies' man and with a suitable change of garb, could have been mistaken for a lady's maid. The third and final uh, Lincoln staff member, uh, William Stoddard, 25 years old at the time he was on Lincoln's staff, also from Illinois, another newspaper man, uh, originally from upstate New York, but had moved to Illinois um, to become a newspaper man. Stoddard is a really witty, uh, brilliant writer who wrote more about the Lincoln White House than anyone else did and kept writing about it for years afterward. Um, he's a great source for the sort of atmosphere, the personalities in the White House. Um, as, as Mark Twain said, he could be a stretcher from time to time uh, about the truth. So you have to be careful about his uh, alternative facts. But, but he's a very clever writer, and he gives you a real good uh, sense of the people and the atmosphere in Lincoln's White House. He was put in charge of the correspondence desk at the time, and there would be five or six hundred letters a day coming in uh, to Lincoln's White House. He screened them all and threw out the ones that no one would ever want to see. Um, he says at one time in his memoir that he became quickly convinced that whenever a man goes plumb crazy, he sits down and writes a letter to the President of the United States. Uh, Stoddard had a weekly correspondence with the angel Gabriel, among others. Um, he talks about a petition that was signed by seven of the founding fathers, all of them long since dead. And uh, he says at one point that he also came to the view that the asylums on the other side are very badly run. Uh, this floor plan of the second floor of the White House is more interesting, I think, uh, than the first. Off to the upper right corner is Lincoln's bedroom there, his dressing room, and the adjoining bedroom of Mrs. Lincoln, which was the fashion in the day for upper middle class and upper class people, which was followed in the White House. The bedrooms for visitors and the children are here. Um, the office wing runs from here over. Um, and that office wing was directly over the East Room and was therefore of a higher, you know, a higher altitude, if you will, than the others. So the ceilings were more or less normal height, whereas in the family quarters they were um, double height ceilings. And what we call today Lincoln's bedroom was never Lincoln's bedroom. It was actually Lincoln's office in that uh, corner there, or near corner. Next to it is Nicolay's office, his uh, private secretary, the waiting room, and the ante room, the difference being the level of your importance. Senators, congressmen, diplomats would be in the ante room. 
the public in the waiting room. And across from that is the office of Hay and Stoddard and the bedroom of Nicolay and Hay, which sounds like a perk when you first hear it, but when you read about how Lincoln would uh, wake them up uh, at 2 and 3 in the morning uh, when they needed help on some military event or some writing task or sometimes just to go in and read to them when Lincoln was distraught or anxious, he would walk down the hall with a copy of Robert Burns uh, or Thomas Hood, his favorites, or perhaps the latest rustic humor, which he really enjoyed. And uh, Hay writes about how he would stick his head in at 2 in the morning and say, uh, John, are you awake? Are you, are you awake? <laughs> and uh, come in and sit at the end of the bed and read to Nicolay and Hay um, from Thomas Burns with this Plains, uh, Illinois accent, and then walk out with the candle in his hand uh, in his nightgown down the hall back to his bedroom. This is a contemporary sketch of Lincoln's office by uh, a young man who uh, sat there and drew it as he waited to speak with the president. Um, you can see, for one thing, the gas chandelier and the gas line coming down to it to the gas lamp on the cabinet table, which is where the cabinet met, right in Lincoln's office, and had done for 40 or 50 years. Um, the little writing desk there that Lincoln worked at most of the time when he wasn't working at the cabinet table, both of which were usually overflowing with papers and piles of teetering documents and such. Um, there was no file room, by the way, in the White House. All of the staff and the president kept their papers right in their own office, so you can imagine walking into this sort of hoarder's den with leaning towers of papers and such after a few years. Um, this pigeonhole desk pushed up against the door that led to the anteroom. I like to think of it as a kind of a barrier that Lincoln had shoved up there to keep the, keep the people out. And then military maps on the wall that would change depending on you know, which of the military fronts was most active at the time. Uh, this is a very rare photograph of Lincoln in his office that was taken as a study for a painting of Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation, um, which still hangs in the Capitol today. Um, and the, um, you see there the end of the cabinet table and this kind of stiff pose that you've had to have held for about a minute uh, interior photography was very primitive then. Exterior was better, but you, uh, you didn't get much light for interior. You see that pigeonhole desk uh, up against the door. Um, I've been assured that's not an iPad uh, in his hand. Um, and you see the chair on rollers there that had been designed by Jefferson. This was an innovation of Jefferson's, and there were still furniture in Lincoln's White House that went back to John Adams. Um, it wasn't very highly regarded. A newspaper said it was too rickety to venerate. And uh, generally, the ambiance of Lincoln's office before Mrs. Lincoln got a hold of it was very much like the rest of the house, run down, cigar smoke infused, uh, worn carpeting, faded, faded drapes. Uh, a congressman came to see Lincoln, newly elected himself, and said it reminded him of the breaking up of a hard winter. Uh, this is a photograph taken during Harry Truman's gut renovation of the White House in 1950, which some of you may know about. Basically, the 
house was taken down, not just to the studs, but to the stone wall, completely gutted out inside and, and essentially replaced because it was literally falling down around Truman's ears. But I show it to you now because it's taken from where Lincoln's office would have been. Um, and that entire area here is all of the office wing of the President of the United States in the course of the Civil War. You can see by the scale from this man standing there how small a space that is. Impossible to visualize now with the executive office building and all of the scattered executive buildings around town. Uh, this, would not, this would not staff a major city's post office today, but that's what Lincoln had to work with. This is uh, a photograph of the two young Lincoln boys with their uncle. Um, the little guy in the corner is Tad. Uh, the bigger boy is Willie. Uh, Willie was about 10 when the Lincolns moved in. Tad was about six. Um, I don't have time to go into the two of them. The stories go on uh, pretty much forever. But in capsule form, Willie, the older boy, was a very serious, studious uh, sort of a kid. Uh, his hobby was collecting railroad timetables. And he would sit there and plot the most efficient way to get from St. Louis to Baltimore uh, and the like. So you get that sense of what sort of a child he was. And Tad was the complete opposite. Um, Hay referred to him as the chartered libertine of the White House. Uh, Lincoln was totally indulgent of Tad. He would blow a horn, beat a drum, uh, walk into Lincoln's office beating that drum during a cabinet meeting and be told by the president to keep, to keep it down. Um, one senator did, referred to Tad as more numerous than popular. Uh, the older Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, uh, was at Harvard at the time of Lincoln's presidency and only visited the White House occasionally. There's a good bit about Robert in the book, an interesting man uh, that I don't have time to go into now. Um, Mrs. Lincoln, um, I definitely don't have time uh, to go into. <laughs> uh, I think if, if I were to sum up Mrs. Lincoln in one word, it would be complicated. Um, the book talks about her, uh, you know, she was a great mother, devoted wife, um, and did a tremendous redecorating or restoration better uh, of the White House, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, and some people thought well of her. The majority of men and women uh, who write about Mrs. Lincoln have an unflattering portrait. And um, unfortunately, as a lawyer, I can tell you that there's overwhelming evidence that it wasn't just temperament, but actual fraud is the best word uh, to use with the concealment of expenses with crazy level of shopping that was buried in federal records, uh, documented cases of going in and buying a $1,000 silver set for the White House and being told by the merchant to spend another $1,000 on herself and he would bill the government for 2000 that sort of thing. That said, a mixed, a mixed story on Mrs. Lincoln. Um, Mrs. Lincoln began her refurbishment of the White House with a budget of $26,000, which was serious money at the time. The ratio is about 40 to 1, by the way, of a dollar today uh, uh, versus then. It's about 40 to 1. The budget for a four-year term to furnish and restore the White House was 
Mrs. Lincoln spent more than $35,000 in the first month uh, and went on from there. Uh, in addition to what we see here, this beautiful hand-painted china, some examples of which still exist, uh, about three or 400 pieces of that china, um, seven or 800 pieces of the cut glass that uh, she had made for the White House. The china and glassware alone in today's money is about $600,000. Uh, and this is in the middle of the Civil War with, uh, you know, a budget being strained for that, as you would expect. This is a, just an example of the beautiful uh, hand-carved cherry and mahogany furniture that Mrs. Lincoln had made for the White House, much of which is still there. This shot, or this engraving of uh, Lincoln's office at the time um, he moved into it can be compared with it as it looked after Mrs. Lincoln uh, redecorated it. And I show you this contemporary cartoon of Lincoln, not for its substance, it's an anti-war cartoon, but to say that whoever drew it had seen Lincoln in his office, because that's exactly the way he would typically greet visitors in one of his more dignified moods. Um, he might be lying on the couch, he might be lying on the floor, he could be lying on the floor with his feet hooked up over a chair, he could be sitting in one chair with his legs stretched out in another, uh, just a very eccentric way of uh, sort of wearing a chair rather than sitting in it, with the overflowing wastebasket and the table full of books and such. So had you walked in there, this is pretty much what you would have seen. Uh, this tableau from the Lincoln Museum and Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois, I was just there last week, um, is a recreation of Lincoln's office, very meticulously accurate, after Mrs. Lincoln's uh, redecoration. Here is a shot of it from another angle. Um, I sometimes think that the Secretary of the Treasurer in the lower left is uh, reviewing the bill from Mrs. Lincoln's <laughs> refurbishment. And I'll show you only two of, of Lincoln's cabinet members, the most famous two. One is William Seward, his Secretary of State who is a brilliant, uh, very charming, personable um, man, former governor of New York from upstate New York, uh, very wealthy, um, very well-educated, um, and became no doubt closer to Lincoln than any, any other man. It's sort of uh, unlikely combination. We know Lincoln's background and origins and lack of education, but he and Seward became really inseparable friends. Um, and everybody enjoyed Seward. He was sort of the favorite dinner companion. Uh, I like to tell a very quick story that a woman came up to him at a dinner party and had seen Union troops leaving the city in large numbers and asked him where they were going. And Seward said, Madam, if I did not know, I would tell you. <laughs> the other Second most famous of, of Lincoln's cabinet secretaries, Edwin Stanton, his secretary of war, had the exact opposite temperament and personality uh, of, of uh, Seward. Uh, Ice-like, uh, completely humorless, difficult, demanding, uh, insulting kind of person. Um, Hay, again, was once asked by Nicolay to go in and wrangle a favor from Stanton uh, for some woman in Illinois, and Hay wrote him back and said, I'd rather make the tour of a smallpox hospital. 
Uh, this contemporary cartoon of Lincoln is subtitled Gulliver Abe in the White House Attacked by the Lilliputian Office Seekers. Um, also for very good reason. Within the first few weeks of Lincoln's presidency, there were about 2,000 office seekers who came to the White House personally to try to petition him for a job. And although that slackened off after the jobs were largely filled, it never stopped completely. It was constantly harassed by office seekers. There were times when he would come out of his bedroom, if you remember that chart with the long hallway down the family quarters, come out of his bedroom and be assaulted in, in that hallway by people thrusting resumes in his hand and trying to get uh, jobs uh, from him. This engraving was done at Harper's Weekly, actually it came from the Athenaeum here, um, of that waiting room that I showed you on the chart with these men waiting to see the president to uh, be interviewed personally by him for jobs. Believe it or not, in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln interviewed most of those job seekers one by one for jobs like a postmaster or a lighthouse keeper, you know, as well as higher level jobs. There's a story I tell in the book about a very simple man who came to Lincoln asking to be employed as a doorman. Um, Lincoln wanted always to disappoint people as gently as he could. So he says to this man, um, well, do you have any experience in doorkeeping? And he says, well, no actual experience, Mr. President. He says, well, do you have any theoretical experience? <laughs> he says, well, no, no, Mr. President, I, I don't. He says, well, have you read any books on the principles of doorkeeping? <laughs> uh, have you attended any doorkeeping lectures? And the, the, the poor man had to keep saying, no, he hadn't. And finally, Lincoln says, well, can't you see, my good man, that you're just not qualified for this important job? And, and Hay says that the man actually seemed happy as he left. As he left. Uh, briefly touching on the war, which is almost off camera in the book, uh, when the war broke out, um, there were virtually no federal troops in Washington. There were a few hundred federal troops. One, one officer said that there was the commander-in-chief's guard and the Marine Band, uh, and not much more. Um, but there were tens of thousands of uh, Virginia militia right across the river. And you can imagine looking out of Lincoln's office window and seeing Confederate flags flying from the hills, uh, cannon mounted on those hills. And for a period of about 10 or 12 days before the northern militia regiments reached Washington, uh, what few federal troops there were actually camped out in the East Room, as you can see in this engraving. Uh, John Hay said it was the most luxurious barracks that any troops had ever occupied. Once those regiments arrived, there was this great processional past the White House with Lincoln in the tent there in a kind of a reviewing stand. Uh, this photograph of one of the New York fire zouaves with their uniforms modeled after the French Revolution, uh, standing on a rebel flag that was taken down from the roof of a hotel in Alexandria that Lincoln could see with his spyglass from his office. Uh, this is a modern painting of the White House after those troops arrived. And there were, at that time, guards posted in front of the White House, pacing, as you see here, two guards uh, on a sentry beat. But once again, nobody stopped you if you went to the portico, just as you had before. You didn't get stopped. You didn't get searched. You didn't get questioned. They were more decorative than useful, as one of them later said. Some of them uh, were encamped on the south lawn of the White House, where Tad loved to go out and 
hang with them and, you know, sit, sit around their campfire and hear words that he came home and repeated to his mother without, uh, without uh, charming her. Um, and they took a great shine to Tad. They actually made him a uniform and appointed him as their honorary colonel, uh, after which Tad had his photograph taken sort of as if he were McClellan and signed his letters from there on out as Colonel Tad Lincoln. Um, I'm going to go through the rest of these quickly now so we have time for questions, but one of the more serious accomplishments that Lincoln used the White House for was to open it up to black people. Uh, Frederick Douglass here, um, who is actually dead, um, <laughs> was um, very popular and very famous in his time, and uh, Lincoln called him in for meetings in his office three or four times to consult with him on matters concerning black troops and other issues, brought in black ministers, clergy, leaders, which was all utterly unheard of uh, before that time, and also opened the door to petitioners, visitors, people coming to these levees and such, uh, which was really a groundbreaking thing. Entertainment, P.T. Barnum and his, head, his chief star at the time, uh, General Tom Thumb, as he was called, was a, a, a celebrity of epic proportions. I don't know why, but in 1862-3, uh, Tom Thumb was paid $50,000 a year. The president got $25,000 a year. Um, one of the entertainment groups that Mrs. Lincoln had in the Red Room to entertain uh, her guests and, and, and the presidents, the Hutchinson family singers were the great pop stars of their day. Um, you can see their names faintly under under them there, like sort of like John, Paul, George, and Ringo. <laughs> um, Herman the Prestidigitator was the great magician of his time, came and performed in the Red Room for the Lincolns and their guests. Um, one of the great events of 1862 was a terrific party that Mr. Mrs. Lincoln staged for uh, her friends and dignitaries in town. Um, the dresses um, that were worn there, some of them are still kept at the Lincoln Museum, as you can see here, roughly 25 yards of silk in each one of those dresses, um, held up with whalebone or iron cages, if you will, in those hoops. And when the ladies would stand around Mrs. Lincoln in a reception line, one general remarked that she was better protected by the hoops than she could have been by uh, a company of troops. Uh, tragically, that very night of this great party to show off the new White House, um, Willie Lincoln came down with what is now thought to have been typhoid fever. Um, this is a tableau from the museum. Mrs. Lincoln had to sort of shuttle back and forth from this tremendous party to her uh, son's bedside. Uh, he survived the night but died in that room about two days later. And there's a a lot in the book about the consequences of that, one of which was the holding of a half a dozen seances in the White House. Um, some charlatans who worked their way into Mrs. Lincoln's confidence had these uh, seances until uh, Lincoln was persuaded that some of them were, in fact, just sheer frauds and had them driven out. But uh, Lincoln himself attended at least one of those seances before that was uh, discovered. And then quickly through some of the celebrities who passed through the White House as they do today, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Julia Ward Howe, the 
author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was the great uh, music of its day, Walt Whitman. Uh, there's a good bit about Walt Whitman in the book. And then we come to the end of the story. Uh, with Lee's surrender in April of 1865, there was a tremendous celebration on the presidential grounds, fireworks and displays of all kinds. And one story I think is kind of interesting. Um, they had a soldier with a candle stand at every window of the White House and every window of the Treasury Department and the State Department uh, next to it. And when darkness fell, the band struck up the Star Spangled Banner, and all of those soldiers lit their candles, and the windows all exploded with light. Uh, people couldn't figure out how it had been done. There, in the newspapers, there's talk about electricity. Uh, so it was sort of a spectacle. Uh, you might say a farewell spectacle, because unfortunately, within a few days of that, we have the assassination. Um, here we see the White House pillars draped in black crepe uh, for Lincoln's funeral, which took place in the East Room. And Mrs. Kennedy, some of you may know, actually modeled uh, her husband's funeral on Lincoln's funeral uh, as much as she could from the records that were available. This is uh, turning to the epilogue section of the book here at the end, um, giving you a, a full-scale view of that gut renovation of what happened to the White House under President Truman. And lastly, uh, I turn your attention to, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to read the passage that I generally read, but uh, to the left of this photograph is John Hay at the age of 25, at about the time of Lincoln's death. And to the right is John Hay just before his own death at uh, the age of 64, when he was Secretary of State for Teddy Roosevelt. Um, probably no one else in history worked on the staff of two of the faces on Mount Rushmore, uh, but John Hay. And he does write, he has a diary that's often quoted in the book, which he kept throughout his life. And I think there's a kind of a poignant ending uh, to the first book, which he wrote just a three or four days before he died. He said he had a dream the night before, that he went to the White House, and Mr. Lincoln was the president. And uh, Lincoln asked him to answer a few letters that were relatively unimportant, uh, which he did and was very sympathetic about my illness. And I was very glad, indeed, to have been able to do this little favor for Mr. Lincoln. I didn't think it at all strange that he was the President of the United States, but it left me with an overwhelming sense of melancholy. That ends the book, and that ends the presentation. I'd be happy to take any questions.